Proverbs chapter 8, and we'll be reading from verses 22 to verse 31. The word of the Lord says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had laid shape, before the hills I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its, with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Much of what I'm going to be saying tonight um, is to many of you, or maybe not to many of you, will be uh, very difficult, uh, will be very technical. Um, but it will be glorious. Uh, it will be majestic for any time we speak of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the highest science of our learning. Um, it, always, it always is a wonderful thing. Uh, this evening, I want to challenge you, though, to, to think with me and to think with those who have come before us uh, to climb this high mountain of Christology and to, and to not be afraid of going to the deep waters of who our Lord and Savior is. So, saints, uh, this evening, let's challenge our minds. Uh, let's challenge uh, our bodies uh, to be patient with our understanding of uh, our limited understanding of, of what we can fully comprehend and also apprehend. And I pray that after this is done, you will worship your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, for who he is and what he has done on your behalf. Uh, from the outset, I want to make the words of Augustine my own. Augustine says on the doctrine of the Trinity, or before he speaks on the doctrine of the Trinity, he says, From now on, I will be attempting to say things that cannot altogether be said as they are thought by a man or at least as they are thought by me. In any case, when we think about God, the Trinity, we are aware that our thoughts are quite inadequate to their object and incapable of grasping him as he is. So I start by asking him to help me understand and explain what I have in mind and depart any blunders that I may make for I am aware of my own willingness and weakness. And I echo those words, for the doctrine of the Trinity is without question the most perplexing or the most mysterious and perplexing doctrine in all of theology. If we did a survey in this room of, and we, we asked you to explain the Trinity, we might get a myriad of different answers. Because of Scripture, we are forced to say things and use terms that we don't normally use to describe God. 
Yet we are very aware, to steal the words of Augustine, that our thoughts are quite inadequate to their object and incapable of grasping him as he is. Meaning, we can say something of the Trinity, for God has revealed himself to us, but we can't fully and completely comprehend the Trinity. We can't fully wrap our minds around the Trinity. Yet, because of special revelation, we must say something of the Trinity because we don't want to be reduced to silence. Holding to the classical orthodox view of the Trinity is like walking down a tight rope. And the way we balance ourselves is by holding on to the biblical descriptions of who God is. One God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. So how do we define the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Consider the words of the Athanasian Creed. Now this is the Catholic faith that we worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. The Trinity is that biblical doctrine that says that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. Or to steal the language of our confession, chapter 2, paragraph 3, three subsistences. The Bible identifies three, three, these three persons as each being God. Each person within the Trinity has the whole divine essence. Yet the essence is undivided. Now... Who are these three persons that scripture that the scriptures identify as God? Who are these three persons? There's one God who eternally exists in three persons. Who are these three persons? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are the three persons of the Trinity. Those are the three persons who are co-equal and co-eternal in their divinity. The Father is God and is a distinct person within the Trinity. The Son is God and is a distinct person within the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is God and is a distinct person within the Trinity. One God in three persons. One God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. Now, now that we have that established, what distinguishes the persons? What distinguishes the persons of the Trinity? Again, the Athanasian Creed says, For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit still another. What makes these persons distinct, distinguished from one another? Well, it can't be the essence. Because the essence is undivided. They are all, or they are co-equal and co-eternal in their essence. So what is it about the persons of the Trinity that makes them distinct? For we know the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. What we confess and what makes these persons distinct is the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeds. But, 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 that's it. There's your distinction. The Father is unbegotten. 
the Son is begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Can you turn the air down a little bit? Or off because it's cold. Um, <laughs> no, Ralph. Um, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. We must say this, saints. This is the, the classical orthodox view of the, the distinctions within the persons. Again, the Athanasian Creed says this. The Father is neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. That's what it means to be unbegotten. The Son is neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. That's what it means to be unbegotten. The Holy Spirit was neither created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what it means for the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And notice the language of the Athanasian Creed, how they're very careful with not blending the persons together. Okay? The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. Why? Because that's the Son's personal property. The personal property of the son, what it means to be son is to be created or not created, but to be begotten from the father. The son is not created. And the Holy Spirit's personal property was neither to be created nor begotten, for he proceeds from the father and the son. Now, what does this all mean? And what does this have to do with what we're talking about this evening? This evening, saints, in order for us to uh, get a, a fully a fully orthodox um, biblical Christology, and I'm going to say this term improperly and loosely, but we must first begin at its origins. Meaning we can't do a study in Christology and jump straight to the incarnation of the Son. Or we can't do a study in Christology and then jump straight to the work of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. Or his ascension. But we must speak of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, and his origins within the Trinity. So what I want to do this evening, saints, in our study in Christology, is I want to answer this one question. Is what does it mean for the son to be eternally begotten from the father? What does it mean for the Son to be eternally begotten from the Father? We have it in the Athanasian Creed. We have it in the Nicene Creed. We have it in the Bible that the Son is begotten. So what does that mean? If someone was to ask you, what does it mean for the second person of the Trinity to be Son? What does that mean? What does it mean for the Son to be Son? Is that simply a name that is given to him as incarnation? Is that simply a title that we give to him because we like that title and we want to give that to him? Or does that name son mean something more? Is there an an ontological reasoning for the name son? So this evening's things in our study of Christology, I want us to consider the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son. If you, want to, if you want to know what doctrine we are speaking of in Christology, it's the eternal generation of the Son. The eternal generation of the Son. And we'll do that in three points. Number one, 
what is the eternal generation of the son? What is the eternal generation of the son? Point two, what is the biblical witness to the eternal generation of the son? What is the biblical witness to the eternal generation of the son? And number three, why does the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son matter? Why does the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son matter? So what is it? It's biblical basis. And then why does it matter? Why does it matter? So let's first look at our first point, which is, what is the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son? That might be a new term for you. You might have not, uh, not have heard that before. Um, but the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son has been confessed long by uh, the Orthodox uh, fathers and long by the uh, the ones who framed our, our confession, the ones who framed the, uh, the Westminster Confession and the Savoy and, and all of that. But what is it? What is it? The doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son says that the Father or the person of the Father communicates the whole divine essence to the person of the Son. That was a lot, I know. That the person of the Father communicates the whole divine essence to the person of the Son. Now, it's simple for, it's, it's simple for us to say that's the doctrine, but it's very uh, technical and, and, and difficult for us to explain it. So let's try to explain it. Meaning, the Son has the divine essence from itself as God, or from himself as God, but not from himself as Son. That the Son has the divine essence from himself as God, but not from himself as Son. So I'm making a distinction between the Son's divinity and the Son's person. Meaning, the Son has the whole divine essence. In and of himself. And what I mean divine essence is the godness of God. All that it means to be God, the Son has. All that it means to be human, you have. Humanity, right? So the, the, the Son has the whole divine essence in and of himself with respect to his divinity. Remember, saints, the Son shares in that one divine essence. The Father, uh, with, with the Father and the Son. Uh, the Son is co-eternal and, and with uh, co-eternal, and he, he is with the Father and the Spirit, co-eternal and, and power and, and willing and, and, and all of that. But with respect to his person, with respect to his person, who the Son is, he receives the whole divine essence by way of eternal generation from his Father. The eternal generation of the Son... In, involves a communication of the whole divine essence to the Son from the Father. Note this, not a generation of a new essence. Not a generation of a new essence. And that, that's important to note, saints, that in this eternal generation, the Father doesn't communicate His person to the Son. The Father doesn't communicate His person to the Son because that would blend the persons. That would mean the Father and the Son are not distinct. That would mix the persons together. 
Remember that we have to confess one God in Trinity who eternally exists in three persons. These persons are distinct from one another. So if the Father communicates his person to the Son, then that means that the Father is blending his person with the Son. Nor does the Father communicate, and hear this, nor does the Father communicate his essence to the Son. Meaning, therefore, bringing about an entirely new essence. That's what you do. When, when mothers and fathers beget children, what do they do? They bring about a new essence, a new human being. That's not what happens in this eternal generation. Uh, the father does not beget or communicate his essence uh, to the son, thereby bringing about a new essence. He doesn't create the son. He doesn't make the son. Okay? The father doesn't make or create uh, the son and his divinity. That's not what we're saying. If that was the case, then that would mean the son isn't God from all eternity. There once was a time when the son was not. The son is eternal God. The doctrine rather says the father personally communicates the divine essence to the person of the son as to the son's personal subsistence, meaning as to the manner in which the son exists. And I'm not going to, I was going to do a lengthy discussion on the meaning of a divine person, but I have, I have them in my notes. And if you want the email, I'll send them to you. You can have at it, but that's what it means to be a divine person. You might say, well, what's the, you're talking about the essence and the person. Listen to John Owen. John Owen says a divine person is the divine essence subsisting in an especial manner. The Son exists in this manner. God exists in a threefold manner, father-wise, son-wise, spirit-wise. Francis Turretin sums it up plainly. He says, although the Son is from the Father, nevertheless, he may be called God of himself. Autotheos, which is the doctrine of aseity. Those in the narrow road will know that. Um, and you guys will know that too. Uh, not with respect to his person, but essence. Hear what he's saying. That although the son is from the father, he still is of himself. With respect to his divinity, but not respect to his person. Not relatively as son, for thus he is from the father. But absolutely as God, in so much as he is, in so much as he has the, he has a divine essence existing from itself and not divided or produced from another essence. That's exactly what I've been saying, that the son is not produced from another essence. The son is not produced from the father's essence, because that would mean that there are two essences, two gods. We don't confess two gods. We confess one God but not has having the essence from himself. The father, the son is from the father. It's proper to say that the son is from the father. He is eternally generated from the father. And this is what's been confessed throughout the history of the church. This is not a doctrine that I, I dreamt up on, uh, you know, last week. And I said, we should really touch this doctrine, but it's been confessed throughout the, the history of the church. Consider the language of the Nicene Creed. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of every God. You just sung that. 
you just sung this one who is light of light has come in human flesh. What does it mean for this one to be light of light, to be very God of every God? Again, John Owen, whence he is said to be God of God as having his nature generated onto him by virtue of his eternal generation. What John Owen is saying is he's reinstating the language of Nicaea, that God of God language. What does it mean to God of God and light of light and very God of very God? And he understands that to mean that the Father communicates the divine nature to the Son in eternal generation. What does it mean to be the Son of God? It means to be of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. But we have to ask saints, what does the word generation mean? Especially if it's eternal. What does the word generation mean? Especially if it's eternal. When we say that the son is eternally begotten from the father, what and how is he begotten from the father? What and how is he begotten from the father? Well, let's first answer what it doesn't mean. And at times when we are trying to understand a doctrine, it's better to look at what the doctrine doesn't mean before we look at what it does mean. This is called negative theology. Usually when we hear the word begotten, automatically we think, oh, that's bringing forth children. That's, that's what it means to bring forth a child. To beget, it means to create, to bring forth into existence. There once was a time, me speaking personally, there once was a time when I was not a father. I had the potentiality to be a father, but I was not a father. Last, uh, last year or two years ago, I was not a father. But in a few months, that title of father will be added to my personhood. Similar to you, there once was a time when you weren't a mother, father, any of that, son. I have not always been a father, but, as so- but soon I will become a father through the act of generation or begetting. And my son will be brought forth into existence. There once was a time when baby Zay was not here, right? Similar with you. But also, there's a lot of other things that goes into a father begetting a son. It involves passion. It involves change. It involves two people. Yes, a male and a female. We do believe in that. A male and a female. When a father begets a son, a small part of the father is given to the son. That's what it means to beget. The son is like his father. But saints... All of what we just spoke of cannot be thought of when we ask how the father eternally begets the son. We can't even think on those terms. We, matter of fact, we throw all of those out of the window. When we speak of the father eternally begetting the son, we must not think in human terms. That's important to note. We must not think in human terms when we think of how the father begets the son. Although we are losing, using a human concept to speak of a divine act, we must not make one-to-one connections. We must not make one-to-one connections. So the way that we beget as humans is the exact way the Father eternally begat the Son. That's not how it happens. 
when we say the Father eternally begat the Son, it's like a human generation in the sense that like begets like. But it's unlike human generation in that it did not physically produce another being. When the Father eternally begat the Son, it did not produce a physical being. When the Father eternally begat the Son, there was no passion involved. He's impassable. When the Father eternally begat the Son, there was no change involved. He was, he's immutable, right? God is immutable. He's unchanging. When the Father eternally begat the Son, there was no part or small part of the Father that was given to the Son. Narrow road? Because he's simple. Right? He's simple. No, God is partless, right? He's invisible. He's a most pure spirit. When the Father eternally begat the Son, that doesn't mean that the Father began to be a father. That doesn't mean that the Father became a father through the act of eternally begetting the Son. That even sounds wrong. Why? Because it's eternal. How does it even happen? How does that work? There never was a time when the Father wasn't the Father or wasn't Father. Well, you can't say that about yourself. There once was a time when you weren't son or you weren't father, you weren't mother or auntie or uncle or whatever. And likewise, when the father eternally begat the son, that doesn't mean that the father brought the son into existence. He was not created. The son was not created by the father. We strongly deny the Arian claim that there once was a time when the son was not. The Arians believe that. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that. There once was a time when the Son was not friends. The Son was never brought into existence by the Father. The Son was not created by the Father. The Son was not made by the Father. The Son is eternal. Just as there has always been the Father, there has always been the Son. And the Father has never been without His Son. The Son's generation from the Father, hear this, is without beginning, without end, and without succession. I have no idea what that means. But I, but I adore the God whom this is speaking of. The Son is not begotten or brought forth, hear the saints, after the manner of men. He's not brought forth after the manner of men. The Father's generation of the Son is not analogous to, to human procreation, but rather, hear this, it's supernatural, incomprehensible, and eternal. Because the, son, because the Son is eternally generated from the Father, we aren't to think that the Son, and hear this, this, isn't, this is really important, we aren't to think that the Son is subordinate to the Father. That's really important to note if you're taking notes, that, that because the Son is eternally generated from the Father, we aren't to think that the Son is subordinate to the Father. The doctrine of eternal generation of the Son strongly denies that the Son is less than or other than the Father in rank, degree, or authority. The Son in His person is not less God than the Father. The Son is not inferior to the Father because of this eternal generation. So how does the Father eternally beget the Son? We just, mentioned, we just said all of the, the negatives of what it doesn't mean. It's not analogous to human procreation. The father doesn't beget the son, just like fathers, human fathers beget human sons. It's timeless. It's eternal. Without end, without beginning, without succession. 
Doesn't mean that the son is inferior to the father. Doesn't mean that the son is subordinate to the father. So what does this mean? How does the father do this? Let me give you your answer, saints. I don't know. This is a mystery. I don't know how the father eternally begets the son. I don't know. I I can't comprehend how the father from all eternity communicates the whole divine essence to the person of the son. I don't understand that. But I know if I deny that, I'm going against scripture and I'm going against thousands of years of church history. One theologian said, here the understanding of not only men, but of angels is at a loss. Here we must lay our hands upon our lips and be silent. As Calvin would say, where scripture is silent, we must be silent. And I think that's, that's the danger. And that's why I said at the beginning that holding on to the, the, the classical orthodox view of the Trinity is like walking down a tight rope. And you balance yourself with affirming strongly that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. But when you try to tamper with, hmm, let's see, the persons, does that mean that, that the Son is, is, is brought forth from the Father just as sons are brought forth by their fathers human-wise? Then you fall over. That's what the Arians did. That's what Mormons do, Right? Or, or you try to go the other way. Well, you have one God who eternally subsists or exists in three persons who are each co-equal and co-eternal. Why not just say three gods? That's what tritheists have done. We have to hold on, saints, to the biblical witness of who God has defined himself as and who he is we don't know, saints, how the Father eternally communicates the whole divine essence of the person of the Son. But we do know this, that this generation of the Son is eternal, so that the Father, God the Father, was never without God the Son. There was never a time when God the Son was without God the Father. Never a time. We do know that this, that this eternal generation of the Son is most pure, perfect. Unlike... Uh, when humans beget children, there's, it's not perfect. There's much pain involved. There's much stress involved. This generation of the Son is most pure, perfect, for God is most perfect. The Father's whole divine essence is communicated to the Son without any change in Him, without any alteration, without any mutation. None of the whole divine essence of the Father is lost in this eternal generation. You can't say that about yourselves, specifically fathers, because there is a something in you that loses when you beget children. And we do know that this person, this personal act of the Father, communicating his whole divine essence to the person of the Son, is glorious, eternal, supernatural, and incomprehensible. So saints, from a theological standpoint... That is the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. That's as simple as I can make it for you. The Father from all eternity personally communicates the whole divine essence to the person of the Son. The Father is not the Father by name. We don't give, he's not Father because that's a cool name to give to him. 
But the father is father because he's unbegotten and eternally begets the son. The unbegotten eternally begets the son. And likewise, we can say the son is not a name that is given to the son by way of metaphor or analogy. But he is the son because because that is his proper and natural name. For he is the only begotten son of the father. That's the natural name of, for him. Now, you are sons and you are daughters of God, but not naturally. You are sons and daughters by the still the language of Owen again, by reparation, by adoption. But this is the natural. The son is the natural and proper son of the father. Let's can now consider our second point, which is the biblical witness of the eternal generation. So, um, it's been confessed throughout the year, throughout the ages. Um, but it, what is the biblical support for it? How can we locate this doctrine biblically? <clears throat> now, I want, I want you to note that we arrive at the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son not simply by proof texting. Now, we are going to look at various texts, and that is how I'm going to, to do the majority of locating this, this doctrine from a biblical standpoint. But Note, saints, that we don't locate the doctrine from primarily simple proof texting. But we locate the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son on the account of the entire revelation of Scripture. Specifically, the divine names and their relation to each other. What do we mean by that? In Scripture, we read of these divine names, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what do these divine names mean? What does it mean for the Father to be Father, the Son to be Son, and the Holy Spirit to proceed from the Father and the Son? And, the Holy, and the, by the Holy Spirit's work, uh, we have the biblical witness to those meanings. Let's look at a first uh, few verses from the Gospel of John. And what I want you to notice, saints, in these verses is the relation between the Father and the Son. And you'll see that this intimate relation is grounded in eternal generation. What grounds the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son? Eternal generation. John 1, 14. Let's, let's, do some, let's do some Bible. John 1, 14 says, and saints, I'm going to be reading from the, uh, the New American Standard Bible uh, because they actually render a word or they translate a word that's, that's better than the ESV or the, the NIV. <clears throat> Now, uh, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Pastor Antonio, are you reading from the ESV? Who's reading from the ESV? What is your say? What is your, <laughs> what is your say, brother? John 1, 14. Anyone who has an ESV? So you see the word that they, that they translated is only son. But it's better translated, and it should say only begotten. That word is called, it's in the Greek, it's monogenes. And it's, and it's better translated as begotten. Okay? Um, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. 
Yours might say the only son, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father. He has explained him here in these two verses. Jesus is called the only begotten, which speaks of this unique, eternal, intimate relation between the father and the son. And this eternal, intimate relationship is defined. It's defined by the father eternally begetting the son. As Stephen Lindblad says, begetting lies at the very root of every father-son distinction and relation. I'll say that one more time. Begetting lies at the very root of every father-son distinction and relation. What makes the father distinct from the son? The father begets the son. What makes them relate to one another? They share the same essence, humanity. Similar with the, the one God in three persons. What makes the father distinct from the son? The father eternally begets the son. But what makes them related? That one divine essence. We see in these two verses that John is making a, a careful, a very careful point that Christ alone is the natural son of the father. He is his only begotten. But did you notice, saints, in verse 18, it says uh, in John chapter 1, verse 18, John says the son is in the father's bosom. It doesn't say he was in the father's bosom or he began to be in the father's bosom, but he uses this present tense. In the present tense, who is in the father's bosom? What do we say by eternal generation? Never ends, never begins. This speaks of this unique relation between the father and the son. Again, being in the father's bosom is another way of speaking of being the father's natural and proper son. The, the, old, the old boys in the fourth century wouldn't, wouldn't shy away from saying the son is the offspring of the father. He is the natural and proper son. Now, saints, if you say that, you better know eternal generation very well. Another passage. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 5.26, a very crucial text. John 5.26, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son to have life in himself. One more time, just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son to have life in himself. In this, we see a couple of things. First, the, the father, God, the father possesses aseity, which is to be of himself. It's to have life in and of yourself. Aseity, say of yourself. Secondly, we see the son possesses aseity as well. Again, life in himself. Just as the father has life in himself, just as the father is all say, the son is all say. Which means these persons are co-equal and co-eternal. But there's a, there's a distinction that's being made also. That although the father and the son are co-equal and co-eternal in their divinity, the text says the father grants the son to have life in himself. The father grants the son. So that's the distinction there. Now, that doesn't mean that the father gives life to the son. Don't think that. 
The father doesn't give life to the son. Remember, the father doesn't create the son. The son is not made from the father, begotten, not made. But this word grants or gives carries the idea of communication. Remember, saints, the doctrine of divine of eternal generation says the father eternally communicates to the whole divine essence of the person of the son. So this granting slash giving is pointing to the doctrine of eternal generation. This communication that's involved from all eternity, that the father gives the whole divine essence to the person of the son. The father gives to the person of the son aseity. And if the son has aseity, then he is divine. He, he has the whole divine essence. Let's turn to two, Psalm 2 7. <clears throat> Psalm 2 7. The word of the Lord says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now hold your finger there, please. And let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, while we have our fingers on Psalm 2, Hebrews 1, is everyone there? Hebrews 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now, I read these verses together because these two verses should not be read from isolation from one another. Here we see Hebrews 1.5 commenting on Psalm 2.7. You've heard it from this pulpit many times from Pastor Antonio and Pastor John that revelation, subsequent revelation, comments on previous revelation. Remember, who's the best interpreter of Holy Scripture? The Holy Spirit in the Holy Scriptures. Psalm 2-7, we read of this declaration from the Father that you are my son, today I have begotten you. And friends, we ought to think of that word today as a day in history or a day long ago. Uh, for God doesn't have a today. God doesn't clock time past hours like we do. Years and days do not pass God. God's today is eternal. Therefore, when we read Psalm 2-7, we aren't to think of this begetting as a begetting that happens in time, but we are to think of this begetting that happens eternally. Eternally. Now we have to ask, in, in Psalm 2-7, we read of this, this eternal begetting, but who does this one, be, who does the father beget? We know that the father is speaking of someone. Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who is the father speaking of? Well, Psalm 2, 7 doesn't tell us, but Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 does. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 does. Um, and what does Hebrew 5, Hebrews 1, 5 say? For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. What Hebrews 1.5 is telling us 
is the son whom is referred to in Psalm 2-7 are not angels. This one who is, who is, who is declared to be the son and is, and is eternally begotten from, from eternity past are not angels. For which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Read that to your Jehovah Witness friends one day. Rather, the one who is eternally begotten from the Father and declared the Son of God is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. You might say, well, how did you come up to that, con- that conclusion? Uh, how did you come up with, with the conclusion that, that this eternal begetting in Psalm 2 is speaking of the Father eternally begetting the Son in Hebrews 1.5? How does Hebrews 1.5 say that this eternally begetting is speaking of the second person of the Trinity. The context. Hebrews 1 is speaking all about Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 is speaking of the, the, the supremacy and the majesty and the glory of the second person of the Trinity. We know as Jesus Christ. Friends, Psalm 2, 7, as well as Hebrews 1, 5 is pointing us to that doctrine that we must confess wholeheartedly the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. And last text, Proverbs 8. And we read this earlier. Uh, If you would turn with me one more time. Proverbs 8, verse 22 to 24. And in these verses, we know from verse 12 that the one who is speaking is called wisdom. Okay, that's important to note that the one who is speaking here is called wisdom. And what, is, what does wisdom say? The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Praise God. John Owen, commenting on this verse, says, Our argument hence is, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is spoken of in Proverbs 8.23 under the name Wisdom. So John Owen is claiming that this one whom is speaking in Proverbs 8, who is called Wisdom, is the second person of the Trinity. The Son, the Eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Now, it is said expressly, there of Wisdom that it was begotten from everlasting. And therefore, the eternal generation of Christ is hence confirmed. Our reasons, he gives you two. He had like 10, but let me give you two. Because the things here spoken of cannot be applied to another. And number two, because the very things are affirmed of Christ. Go read John 1.1. 1, 1. We see in Proverbs 8, verses 22 to 24, that before the foundations of the world, that in eternity past, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, was eternally begotten from the Father. Hence, notice the language of verse 22, saints. One last time. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old. That word possessed can be translated beget. The Lord beget me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old. That doesn't mean that, that the second person of the Trinity, when he was eternally begotten of the Son, that he wasn't the first 
created being, as JWs want to put it. Doesn't mean that. This verse explicitly speaks of the eternal beginning of the Son from the Father. So, saints, what we see from these verses is the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. And I hope you've seen that from these verses and uh, the, the exegesis of the verses. There are many ways the Bible speaks of the Son's intimate relation with the Father. The Son does the will of the Father. The Son knows the Father. The Son loves the Father. And friends, the root of this intimate relation between the Father and the Son lies in this eternally begetting from the Father to the Son. That's the root of this intimate relation. The Son is the Father's Son, begotten, not made. One who is of the same essence with the Father. Not subordinate to the Father, not inferior to the Father, co-equal and co-eternal in power, authority, willing, and glory. So now let's look at why does the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son matter? Why does this matter? After we've gone through the theological definition of the doctrine, the biblical witness of the doctrine, now why does this matter? Let me give you two points, one theological, one practical. Number one, the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son matters because it upholds the God whom we confess as triune. The doctrine of the eternal generation of the son matters because it upholds the doctrine of God whom we confess as triune. The doctrine helps us say that each person within the Trinity are distinct by their personal properties, yet co-equal and co-eternal in power, authority, and glory. The personal property of the father is unbegotten. What does it mean to be father? He's not father by name only. He's father because he is unbegotten and he begets the son. The personal property of the son is begotten. The son is eternally begotten from the unbegotten father. And the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son safeguards the fatherhood of the father and the sonship of the son. The father is eternal father. He didn't become father. The son is eternal son. He didn't become son. Within the Godhead, we must maintain this distinction and unity. The father, there can be no father without there being a son or children. If the father does not have a son, then why not call him mother or her mother or anything else? We can make up a name. And that's what a lot of heretics have done. Namely, people who read the shack. Or you have the father has been replaced with mother. I don't want to go there, but we'll talk to me after. The father is eternally father, eternal, eternally has been father to the eternal son. And this father-son relationship has existed from eternity. And it finds its root in eternal generation. The doctrine also safeguards the full deity and and eternality of the Son. The doctrine of eternal generation tells us that the person of the Son is not less than the person of the Father. The Son is not subordinate to the Father. And there was a big debate that happened uh, a year ago where they want to say that what distinguishes the persons within the Trinity is not unbegottenness, begottenness, and, 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 and procession, but what distinguishes the person is The son is inferior to the father. The father has an authority role. 
Therefore, how, we, how do we distinguish the persons? The Father is first, not in person, but in, but in rank, in authority. We don't want to go there. The Father um, is distinct from the Son, but he's not more God than the Son. The Father is not more God than the Son. The Son is not less God than the Father. The Father and the Son are the same in substance. What it means to be Son, all the Godness, and what that, what that means, the Son possesses just as the Father possesses. Although the persons of the Trinity are distinct by their personal properties, unbegotten, begottenness, procession, they are one and the same in regards to their deity. They're distinct in their person, but they are one in their deity. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And saints, if we deny the, the eternal generation of the Son, then we have nothing to say as to what distinguishes the three persons of the triune Godhead. Without eternal generation, who are the three persons? How do we distinguish them? Number two, practical. <clears throat> the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son heightens our view of the triune work of redemption and salvation. The doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son heightens our view of the triune work of redemption and salvation. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Saints, the work of redemption never think is isolated to one person. The work of redemption is a triune work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all work together for you to be saved. Saints, without the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, hear this, the Father's giving of the Son loses its weightiness. Without the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, the, the Father's giving of the Son loses its weightiness. Without eternal generation, the Father didn't give anyone special to save us from our sins. But it's because of the eternal generation. Our salvation means so much more. For the Father gave His only beloved, begotten Son. When the Father sent the Son to be, become incarnate, when the Father gave the Son to die upon the cross for our sins, He did not send a servant. He became a servant through the incarnation. He didn't send a servant. The second person of the Trinity, ontologically, was never a servant. When the, when the Father sent His Son, He didn't send one who was inferior but he gave his only begotten son. And saints, this is the measure of God's love for you. For God so loved the world in this way, or God loved the world in this way. How did he love the world? In this way, that he gave his only begotten son. One who was co-equal, co-eternal with him. One whom he loved from all eternity one whom he has never been without. He gave his only begotten son to save you from your sins. The father gives his only begotten son, saints. And that's the, that's the scandal of the gospel, is it not? The scandalous truth of the gospel 
is that we all deserve the Father's wrath. But rather, we get the Father's Son. We deserve His wrath, but we get His Son. The Father gives His only begotten Son so that we may be called His daughters and sons. He gives His natural Son so we, in return, are adopted daughters and sons. So in closing, saints, in light of this mysterious doctrine, let us not lose the glory behind it. In light of this mysterious doctrine, let us not see the glory of the triune God whom we sing, worship, and declare. So saints, in light of what we all we just said, let us worship our Savior who is the Father's Son, begotten, not made, light of light, very God of every God. Let's pray.